0: It's good for us to be together again in as far as we can be uh, around the word of God. And can I welcome you wherever you are, whether you're live or whether you're watching this in a recorded version of it. Let us bow our heads in a word of prayer before we come to God's word. Almighty God, we have sung of your greatness and your mightiness. And we thank you that that is the case. We thank you that uh, you are the one who takes note of those who are weak and weary and the one who is a refuge for those who are in difficulties. So we come to you this evening, Lord, seeking to learn from your word, seeking that we would be instructed by it and that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to receive it and give us the energy, the spiritual energy to put these things into practice. Lord, hear us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to thank uh, Chris for reading the passage from Luke, but I want us to look at a different passage to that which uh, Chris read, and I'd like us to turn to Mark chapter 14. It's a, a similar passage, narrative to what we had in Luke, but I'll make some comments on that later just before we venture into the meat of the text. Let's just read the first nine verses of chapter 14 in the Gospel of Mark. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And we know that God will bless it to us. And may he bless our meditation on this short passage of scripture. There are uh, accounts of a woman coming to Jesus with an alabaster flask of oil. And we read uh, three accounts which are historically uh, pertaining to the same story. And this is one of them. We have the other two in the Gospels of Matthew in chapter 26 and in the Gospel of John chapter 12. This records uh, this passage we have before us records uh, that uh, the event took place in Bethany, which was the abode of Mary and Martha of Bethany and of Lazarus. And that is the the link between this passage in Mark and the account we have in John's Gospel. There are some differences in the detail, but the Gospel accounts make it quite clear that uh, uh, the Luke passage is uh, telling us of a different event and time. Uh, The Matthew, Mark, and John passages are occurring right before the Passover. And in the account of uh, Luke's gospel, we find it in in Luke chapter 7, which is very early on in the narrative of the gospel account. And most commentators are of the opinion that uh, Luke's account is of a very different event and time. Though the details, admittedly, uh, bear many similarities to the event of uh, Matthew, Mark, and John. The important thing with all these accounts is the action of the woman in the narrative and the object of her anointing, that is Jesus and the ensuing words of Jesus. But in this account and in the other two accounts similar to it, it's very interesting that at the end of it, we find that the focus is still not so much on the woman doing the anointing, but on Jesus, the anointed one. Uh, Jesus and the ensuing words of Jesus here in particular are calling us to take note of this memorable event in verse 9. I say to you, wherever wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So let's look at this chapter. Uh, The first two verses are an introduction to us to the fact that it was two days, as it is written here, before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Preparations were taking place for this Jewish annual festival, and it was to be pa- uh, Passover after uh, two days. Uh, this was a Passover, uh, not only a, a, an expectation, shall we say, of uh, the Messiah, because the Jews, uh, they weren't believers in the coming of the Messiah, but here was the Messiah that had been promised and typified, foreshadowed in Old Testament Scripture uh, coming to be given as the Passover sacrifice. The the Jewish people were uh, celebrating something that had taken place in their history right down through the years, and they wondered when this uh, this promised Messiah was going to arrive, but they weren't aware of the fact that he was there, right with them. But there's an individual here who was aware of that, and of course there were others as well. Every possible preparation would, would have been made for the Passover at this time. Various things were done, and uh, even the, the, the children of the, the society of Jews would have been ve- well-versed in the significance of this important time of year. There's an interesting uh, comment raised by one of the commentators I, I looked at when I was looking at this, and that is this. As pilgrims streamed into Jerusalem, they would have noticed that every tomb Near a road, now deadness or dead people, dead bodies was uh, a sign of uncleanness or symbolic of uncleanness for the Jews. And every tomb near a road was painted with fresh whitewash. Uh, does that not echo words that, Jews, that Jesus used against the Pharisees when he accused them of being whitewashed sepulchers uh, from the on the outside, but inside? Uh, all that was contained in them was dead people's bones. And uh, this fresh whitewash on the tombs was, in effect, a high viz sign so that the people could avoid even rubbing against uh, these tombs and prevent themselves from getting defiled by brushing against the tomb. So the feasts of Passover and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there were two feasts, but they were effectively interjoined. They were held one after the other. And uh, uh, another commentator uh, mentions that in popular usage, the two festivals were merged and treated for practical purposes as the seven-day feast of the Passover. Now, what we find here at the beginning of the chapter is uh, the preparation was taking place and there was this plot by the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, We read in the first verse that they were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. This was their objective. They wanted to do away with this uh, man who was claiming himself himself to be uh, the promised, uh, claiming to be the promised Messiah, the the, the the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament scripture. And they were so much taken up by the religiosity of their celebrations that they were losing sight of what the whole thing was all about. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They didn't want to be guilty of uh, of murder, of killing unlawfully, but they were seeking ways of trying to do that in some sort of a, a plausible way. Uh, as one version of Scripture puts it, they were looking uh, to take him by trickery. That's what the idea of stealth here is. They were t- some under the table method of trying to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, they were fully aware of the fact that they were trying to murder a man, uh, the God-man, a man who was innocent of any crimes or anything at all. Nevertheless, they they were afraid of what the people would say. And uh, they didn't want there to be, as we read here, lest there be an uproar from among the people. They didn't want this to happen uh, during the saints. And in John's account of this precursor time of the Passover, it seems that the religious leaders intended to seize Jesus originally during the feast. But that plan changed when Judas Iscariot volunteered to arrange a private quiet arrest, as we read later in these accounts. So firstly, there is this introduction, uh, the preparation, if you like. And here we have uh, the scenario now changing to focus on something that happened in a home in Bethany. And I want to title this second point, uh, Mary's Act. Now, why do I use the word Mary? Because uh, we read here that it says, a woman came with an alabaster box But I think uh, from looking at scripture and bringing the other passages together, uh, except the Luke one, we find that this was happening in Bethany. It says here in the house of Simon the leper. Some commentators suggest that Simon the leper might very well have been uh, the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but we don't know that. But... Uh, the whole account seems to tie in with what John particularly relates to us in his gospel account of all of this. And we read here that uh, a woman came, verse 3, a woman came with an alabaster flask. Now, we may be familiar enough with these accounts, but uh, it's good to come back to this and really find things that perhaps will challenge us. And I speak for myself as much as for uh, for anybody else uh, looking at the actions of Mary of Bethany here I'm going to refer to her as Mary as I've said. the woman came and uh, we tell we're told here that that uh, this was in Bethany and we find that she does something that is absolutely wonderful we find that She is not hesitant in coming in to where Jesus is and it seems that, as we read later on, that this was something that she had prepared to do in her mind for quite a while. Compared with the the Lucan account, yes, that occasion was precious But it was different uh, in that the woman involved in the Luke account was overwhelmed with her own sense of sinfulness and what the Lord said to her in forgiving her sin. There's no mention of forgiveness here, although Mary knew that this was her forgiving Lord, her Savior. It can be greater, as one commentator uh, mentions, uh, sorry, it's a great thing to love Jesus for all he has done for us, it can be greater still to, to love him simply for who he is in all his wonder and his majesty. And this Mary recognized that, and that is why she was mot- uh, motivated to do what she did. So what we read here is this, a woman came with an alabaster flask, of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Well, you might think, uh, under any normal circumstances, that that would have made a bit of a mess in the the living room or wherever it was in that house of Simon the leper. But uh, Mary didn't care about that in particular because she felt that what she was doing had so much importance uh, uh, connected to it that this is what she had to do. Just a a, a small comment on the alabaster flask and its contents. Uh, Spices and ointments uh, were very often used as investments, apparently, in these early New Testament days. And we don't know what the origin of this flask of uh, alabaster containing what's described here as pure nard, very costly, expensive uh, extracts, which uh, were very aromatic as well. We read in John's account that when she broke the alabaster flask of ointment, that the aroma absolutely uh, pervaded every nook and cranny of the place. It filled the place where she was, and everybody would have been fully aware of that. But uh, going back to this uh, flask of very costly oil, uh, as I mentioned, uh, they were used as investments uh, for people who kept them. Uh, Over time, they grew in value, perhaps just like some bottles of, of uh, whiskey or, or spirits or rain wines uh, or such like. And these were very convenient to be kept because they were relatively small, uh, they were easy to carry around, and they could also be easily sold. But this isn't what Mary wanted to do with it. There was no no mention, nothing in her mind with regard to making some sort of profit for herself unlike others around her, as we'll see in a few minutes. Uh, It's commented that uh, the value of the perfume or whatever it was and its identification as nard suggests that it might have been a family heirloom that was passed on from one generation to another from mother to daughter. Whether that was the case in Mary of Bethany, we just don't know. But that is some of the background here. And it's described uh, as an alabaster flask. It's interesting that it it, it comes out in some translations as an alabaster box. I always used to wonder how on earth uh, you could have something of a liquid nature in what's called a box. But uh, in the original language, it just mentions one word, uh, describing it as a a vessel made of alabaster. And alabaster, uh, myself having been uh, an industrial chemist uh, back in the day, it's uh, very similar to what we call gypsum in our own days. It's a calcium uh, mineral, sometimes called calcite. It's not as crumbly as what we find in modern-day plasterboard or drywall, whatever you want to call it. But uh, this is what it was made of, and in terms of its own value, it was very, very insignificant. And there is the contrast here between the container and its contents. And I think this is a, a very lovely illustration to us. Remember when Paul speaks to the Corinthians and he reminds them of uh, the Lord's people, particularly in the context of the apostles, having this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. That's effectively what this was. And the value of its contents was far beyond the value of the actual container itself. She broke it. She She broke the alabastron, as it is in Greek. And poured it on his head. Uh, it uh, apparently was a, a small bottle, uh, and we're not talking about a miniature bottle or anything like that. But slightly bigger than that, and it suggests that, that uh, it would have had a thin neck, which would have easily uh, been broken. Uh, perhaps a larger version of files of uh, medicine that. Uh, are used or used to be used in days gone by. The value of the perfume and its identification then were so much more significant than the flask itself. And it would appear from what Mark says here, reading into the original language of the text, uh, it was costly and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Poured it in such a way that it cascaded like a, a cataract or a waterfall over his head. There was nothing spared. She just broke it and out it came without any reservation. You know, uh, apparently in, in these days and in modern day some cultures, when, uh, when a guest arrived for a meal, as Jesus did, In the house of Simon the leper here, Uh, when guests arrived for a meal, it was customary to anoint a guest's oil with maybe a few drops, a a dab of oil on their forehead or something like that. But here, this woman, Mary, she went much further than the customary greeting, Uh, assuming that this was her own home. Jesus came as a guest, and what did she do? She just didn't greet him, perhaps in the cultural way, but she poured the entire contents of this alabaster flask of very costly oil on the head of Jesus. You know, I would like to believe that she, she poured this all over him, that she absolutely soaked him in all of this, because later on we find uh, in verse 8 that she'd done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. But she poured the, 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 the nard on him. And another interesting observation we can take from this narrative here is that what she did was done silently. The significance of it didn't need to be, uh, to, didn't need to be made out or ex- extracted by anything she said, because she did this without a word, perhaps not unlike Hannah. Of whom we were talking about uh, earlier today. It's very interesting that because uh, when we read about Mary and Martha, uh, the two sisters, we find that their personalities are very different. Uh, You'll recall that Martha was uh, very much working around. Uh, She was very busy uh, doing things and going from here to there, watching that all the pots weren't overflowing in the cooker and so on and so forth. Whereas Mary sat at Jesus feet. Mary was the quiet one. Martha was as one commentator puts it uh, the talker, the doer, the one who went about uh, very busy and she wouldn't have been lazy but she was rather forgetting her priorities. Mary I think knew her priorities mary was also quiet but she was still a doer doing things that had uh, been uh, brought out of her her spirit her inner being uh, by listening to the teaching of the lord jesus christ she she didn't announce what she was doing She didn't announce what she was going to do. She didn't come in with a trumpet. Look at me. This is what I'm going to do. Are you ready to watch me? No demonstration like that. She didn't want to to be the focus. She wanted someone else to be the focus of what was going on here. She didn't describe it as she did it. She didn't have a running commentary on all that was happening. And neither did she need that vocally. The running commentary was visual rather than audible. And she didn't explain it after, after she did it. She simply did it. And is that not a, a, an encouragement for us sometimes when we wonder what to do for, for the Lord in a, a given situation? Uh, let us not wait to be told to do something. Let us volunteer to do it, being Uh, guided by the Lord. Uh, It's not a license uh, to do anything uh, that we like, for example, within the fellowship of a congregation. But what we need to have is the kind of readiness, uh, the kind of uh, instantaneous uh, way in which uh, Mary did this at the time although it had been in her heart for a while, to do something of worth without fuss. That is the kind of picture that Mary is showing to us in this. Uh, One of the old worthies, Charles Spurgeon, makes a comment on this, uh, comparing Mary with Martha. Uh, If we could all do more, And the emphasis on the word do, if we could all do more and talk less, it might be a blessing to ourselves at least, and also perhaps to others. Let us, he says, work in our service for the Lord to be more and more hidden as much as the proud desire to catch the eye of man, let us endeavor to avoid it. So, it's very easy, but there is no pride. There is no uh, showing off or anything like that in Mary's action here. And it's quite amazing that all, that is all we read about her action in verse 3. It's all there. It's all summarized there. But then what, what comes out afterwards is the, the significance of all that she did in the eyes of of some who were around her, but more importantly, the significance of what she did in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've read that uh, she broke the flask, and uh, in John's uh, account of this, uh, it becomes very clear that there was a beautiful aroma uh, throughout the house, and this was uh, very much uh, an echo of what we read in the Old Testament, where the, the Jewish people began to, to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And the, there is, there is a, a phrase that gets repeated at the beginning of the book of Leviticus with regard to all these sacrifices. Uh, a food, an offering, whether it's a food offering, a burnt offering, whatever, uh, this a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A pleasing aroma to the Lord. Of course, these sacrifices were foreshadowing the, the most pleasing of sacrifices and the most pleasing aroma to the Lord in heaven. And that was the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here is someone who is already showing Christ likeness in the way she is dealing with her Lord, believing about him as the promised Messiah and believing that he was also going to die. Well, Mary did this uh, very conscious of what she was doing, and when she finished, she didn't look at the disciples to ask for their opinion on what she did. I I guess uh, most of us are inclined to be like, was that okay? I'm inclined to be like that myself, speaking personally, Uh, and we're inclined sometimes to do certain things Purely to be seen by others to be doing it, and not from perhaps the purest of motives. So she didn't look to the disciples and ask their opinion on what she did. It wasn't worth hearing anyway, was it, as we read here. And this is the third point I want to look at. The reaction of some to what Mary did. And this reaction we read here in verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. Verses 4 and 5 are the summary of the way these people, some of them disciples, and we know one of them was Judas Iscariot. There was criticism of what she did in good faith to the Lord. And it's amazing how the devil must have been at work here. I believe that there was darkness at work uh, even through Jesus' own disciples at uh, criticizing and not really entering into a full understanding of the significance of what this uh, woman was doing. They were uh, angry. They were really head uh, up, hot under the collar and talking amongst themselves, uh, going, going, going into a corner and de- demonstrably showing that they were very displeased with what Mary had done. Why was the ointment wasted like that? Why was the ointment wasted? They didn't realize that uh, the subject of the anointing by the oil uh, was far more important to her than even he seemed to those who were walking closest to him at the time. Isn't that a lesson for us from Mary here? They criticized her sharply. We read in the AV that they scolded her. They gave her a telling off, as we would put it in modern-day language. But not so, Jesus. We'll come to that in a minute. They criticized her so sharply. And it's amazing that she was just as Jesus himself was going to be. When he, the Lamb of God, was brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is dumb. Quiet. Not a word spoken. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. He did not speak back, and neither did she hear, even though they were against her, telling her off what a lesson that is for us uh, when others are doing what would appear to us to be perhaps uh, too much upfront kind of work for the Lord and be judgmental. Um, the value of the oil, if I can come back to that, Uh, is is mentioned to us. I find uh, Spurgeon's comments on this uh, perhaps a bit amusing, uh, tongue-in-cheek. The value of the oil uh, that is mentioned here is more than 300 denarii, and apparently that would have been about a year's wages for a laborer of the time. Uh, In modern-day parlance, uh, I looked up uh, what the average wages uh, in, in the UK, uh, I think particularly in Scotland, it's about £25,000 or something like that. Uh, I, I perhaps could use another uh, uh, metaphor for describing this. It's about the worth of a free church minister's stipend nowadays, believe it or not. Now, there was a lot of value there in terms of uh, of the financial cost. But uh, the value of it to Jesus was much more than that. And the value of it to Mary was equally. She was prepared to sacrifice this. And this is what Spurgeon says. I shall always feel obliged to Judas for figuring up the price of that uh, box or flask of costly nard. And Judas and the rest of these people, they did it to blame her. And uh, Spurgeon goes on to say, yes, we'll let his, his figure stand and think the more of her, the more he put down to the account of waste. I should never have known, says Spurgeon, what it cost, nor would you either if Judas had not marked down in his pocketbook. And it's amazing that the Lord Uh, has uh, given us this record, uh, particularly in in John's account of that, of what this was worth. It gives gives us some idea of the value of it uh, in these days. But let's now, fourthly, come to Jesus' reaction, because I think this is really what's very important for us to take note of. We read that uh, from verse 6 onwards, right down to the end of the passage. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Let her alone. She's done a good work for me. Well, the disciples and others around probably thought that this extravagant anointing with this valuable perfume was a waste. But Jesus received it as a good work. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This word beautiful has a deep significance in the context of what she has done. It's sometimes translated, she has done a good work, but it's better than good uh, because of the word that is used in the original language describes not only a thing which is good, but also good and lovely. We can be very obedient. We can do our duty for the Lord Jesus. but There are certain things that we can do that not only are good in themselves in a moral way, but also have some beauty. And that is particularly with respect to the way we interact with our fellow human beings. And that beauty has come from the Lord Jesus himself, the creator of beauty, the one who is altogether lovely. The one who is, of, who is fairer than the sons of men, into whose lips is grace infused. She has done a good work, and the Lord gave her the highest compliment because of that. It's not what other, others think of what we do. It's what the Lord thinks of what we do that really matters. It is good for us to be encouraged by our brothers and sisters in the work of the Lord, whatever that might be, whatever role we may have to play in that. But what we have to be mindful of is what is the Lord seeing me do for him? And sometimes we are like Jacob of old who said, my leanness, my leanness. But Mary's focus was on the Lord all all through this. She had, as it were, uh, her focus, uh, her lateral vision blanked out completely. And she was, as it were, looking, uh, running the race that was before her, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of her faith. She's done a good work. And she's done what she could. Here's another aspect of what, this is not an encouragement for you and for me. When we find ourselves wondering, what am I doing for the Lord? Am I doing anything of any great significance at all? But that is not what your salvation depends on. Your salvation depends on the Lord's salvation for you and the Lord's grace in your life. And He expects you As God, as God the Father, to be an obedient child, giving what you can. She's done what she could. And that is what God expects of us all. He expects no more from us than what we can do. But do we know to what extent we can do what we can do? Beware, says one commentator, of setting your sights so low that you believe that doing nothing is doing what you can Sometimes we can use uh, our weaknesses as as an excuse for not being sufficiently active in the Lord's service. There can be no higher commendation than this, says this commentator. All cannot do great things for Christ, but it is well if each one does what he can as unto the Lord himself. I think that is very helpful. And the wonderful thing of Mary's action is that this was planned. She had intended to do this. And as Jesus said, uh, says here, uh, she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Mary must have known that Jesus was going to die. She believed that this is the, was the one who was foretold in Old Testament scripture as the sacrifice that God was to make so that sins and uncleanness may be taken away. Mary listened and believed uh, the teaching of Jesus uh, well before this. This is well on in the gospel narrative. And time had been spent with the Lord Jesus sitting at Jesus' feet. And she would have believed this teaching in a way that, the other disciples simply didn't. And when he said that he would be delivered into the hands of wicked men and mocked and scourged and crucified, she would have believed that. And she said, it's almost as though she's saying within her own heart, if my Lord, my precious savior will be mocked and tortured like this, because that was what was going to happen to him, then allow me to give him some special honor. And that is what she was doing. And Jesus makes it clear that she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And then in verse 9, and I think this is very important for us to take note of. And truly I say to you, says Jesus, whenever or wherever rather the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. What a wonderful testimony Jesus makes for this woman, for Mary of Bethany. The abiding witness of Mary still remains with us, recorded in Scripture. Wherever this gospel is preached, wherever this good news, wherever this story of salvation, the only way that we can be reconciled to God, whatever it is proclaimed in the whole world. You see, Jesus knew he was going to die. Jesus knew that he was heading for the cross, but he did not waver in confidence one bit. He also knew that he would rise from the dead and that this gospel would be preached throughout the whole world. But Mary had a place in the precursor to the cross in what was going on. It's as a memorial for her, in memory of her. What a wonderful thing that is. What a wonderful way of remembering Mary. The disciples longed for fame. Remember John and uh, his brother uh, and their mother claiming a place in the kingdom for them. But no, not so for Mary This woman found an enduring memorial. She found it not by longing for any position, but by simply loving and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh yes, is there not uh, a tendency within us all to look at this story and to say, well, I love Jesus too. Yes, that may be true. And we ask, tell me what I should do to show it. But part of the woman's great love was displayed in this fact that she came up with the idea. Nobody told her to do it, except perhaps the Spirit of God at work in her life. No human being ordered her to do this. But through the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe that the Spirit of God was working in her to express that love with which she herself was loved by her Lord. And if there had been a command to do this, it would would be never uh, as precious, perhaps. Tell me what I could do for Jesus. But uh, the commentators uh, encourage us to look at ourselves within the structure of our congregation, perhaps within our fellowship, and uh, tell us, Tell ourselves that we should do what we can, as is said here. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done and what did she do, she did what she could. May the Lord enable us as brothers and sisters in this fellowship in Dundee to do what we can in his strength for him. Lord, we give ourselves to you. We are amazed at the witness of Mary of Bethany. And we thank you, Lord, for her humility, for her dedication. We thank you for her sacrifice. And we pray that by your Spirit you would enable us to follow her example. As she looked to her Lord, as she adored him, and as she gave the most precious possessions she had for him unsparingly. Lord, may that be so for us in the days and weeks that lie ahead. For Jesus' sake. Amen.